Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the Amrod Deterrence Center. Our host is Dr. Adam Wilder, co-founder and vice president for research at the National Institute for Deterrence Studies. The ANWA Deterrence Center is a 501c3 organization ensuring a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent and its ongoing modernization. Thank you for listening and welcome to the show. The views of the host and the guests are their own. Welcome back to another episode of NucleCast. Of course, I'm your host, Adam Wilder. And today we have with us a great guest who is back for year two of NucleCast. Dave Trachtenberg is the vice president at the National Institutes for Public Policy. He teaches in the Missouri State Program. So if you care about strategy and, and defense policy, it's a great graduate program. So think about that. And of course, he's one of the best thinkers out there. Uh, I, You know, I, I can't think of a time where I've read his stuff and been like, oh, this guy just doesn't get it. So he's a good thinker and he's a good writer. And he wrote a great piece a few weeks ago for it's a nip information series called the fallacy of deterrence by detection and i thought it was important to talk about this because for me you know the the administration had you know it trotted out this idea of integrated deterrence and i have been critical in my writings and about integrated deterrence because I don't think it's a real thing. And I think it's just a way to paper over the administration's failure to build the nuclear arsenal we actually need and to say, we're going to use all these other things and Hey, nukes are, they don't really matter that much. And so Dave's with us today to talk about this paper that I think falls within this sort of critical framework. So welcome back to Nuclecast. Well, thanks, Adam. Uh, it's really a pleasure to be here again with you. I appreciate the invitation and uh, look forward to the discussion today. So tell us what what's sort of the crux of what is this new form of deterrence? And then what is, you know, what are the, you know, I read your, your paper. I thought it was really good. I thought your argument was highly persuasive. But for the, the listeners who haven't read it, what is that argument and sort of what is the foundation of it? Well, uh, yeah, you mentioned integrated deterrence, Adam, uh, and I think that is sort of the buzzword uh, du jour, uh, if you will, of this administration. Uh, no one has really explained, I don't think, adequately what integrated deterrence really is, what it means, what it's supposed to accomplish, other than the sense that I get that it's a form of sort of a strategy that relies on more than just military means for deterrence, sort of a whole of government strategy involving diplomacy, economics, all, all kinds, all, all the elements of power, basically. Uh, in a sense, though, I think it's a way of sort of deflecting attention away from the need to focus on important military measures of deterrence like the nuclear modernization program. Uh, and I think the piece that you refer to that I wrote on the fallacy of deterrence uh, by detection was intended really to, to call attention to the fact that those who believe that deterrence can be successful simply by calling out uh, the bad activities of bad actors in advance, uh, I think that misses the boat. 
Uh, I think really that is an ineffective way to deter an aggressor who's bent on aggression, by the way. If there's an opponent bent on aggression, simply saying, we know what you're going to do, don't do it, is by and large, in my view, going to be likely to be insufficient to prevent that opponent or that aggressor from actually taking taking the action we don't want them to take. So that's why I say I think I think it's a fallacy uh, to rest your deterrent on a belief that exposing information uh, and in, in many cases, the way this administration has approached deterrence has been to to essentially declassify intelligence information to let uh, uh, to let opponents know that we know what they are planning in the hope that that will stop them from acting in a way that we don't want them to act. Uh, and I think that's a very risky deterrent strategy and not really not really likely to uh, likely to work in, in many in many scenarios. So what you're saying is that by throwing shade, you can't deter people. Uh, I th- I think it takes more than just throwing shade. You know, it takes real capabilities, uh, and it 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 takes a real willingness to engage, uh, and it takes credibility, credible ca- having credible capabilities and threats. And part of that means we need a modern, effective, credible nuclear force to demonstrate resolve to opponents. You know, it's, you know, uh, it's, it's more than just verbalizing our concern. Uh, it's more than just saying, uh, we know what you're up to and you shouldn't do it. Uh, it. It takes real, unfortunately, real hard military power to be able to convince opponents who are bent on aggression, who, who have have goals that are inimical to U.S. national interest to think twice before they make a move that uh, we don't want them we don't want them to take. So I've the way I've looked at it and sort of written about it is I see deterrence sort of as a uh, a scale, and that on one end of the scale is deterrence by dissuasion. So I would put this as a dissuasive effort. You know, it could be anything from demarches to, you know, I remember back, you, know, you remember that instance, and I'm drawing a blank on the exact, but I think it was Kennedy who, you know, uh, Khrushchev said, you know, we're not doing, you know, and, and then he slid pictures, Kennedy slid pictures across the table, and it was, it was, you know, intelligence that pictures of what they were actually doing. And then the Russians pulled back. So that would be, he didn't threaten, but he tried to dissuade or, you know, UN resolutions, very, very passive efforts, but they also have the lowest probability of working. You know, it's sort of like, it's sort of like uh, uh, social coercion where, you know, you and I might say, you know, Hey, we don't, you know, we don't do, we don't smoke pot. And we've got another friend who does smoke pot and we say, hey, you know, if you want to be part of our friend group, we're not pot smokers. So you're going to have to give up the pot. You don't threaten them, but you just you use social coercion. So that's to me dissuasive. And then there's denial, which is active, you know, countermeasures. And then I see threat at the the far spectrum and then deterrence fails when you have to act. 
So that's sort of my spectrum of deterrence. And to me, this and what what struck me about your, the article and your quotes from General Berger, or yeah, it was General Berger, who said that, well, threats aren't working, so we're going to dissuade. That's saying, you know, the strongest measures don't work, so we're going to take weaker measures and they'll work. And I, I sort of was scratching my head thinking, how do you figure that? How do you figure the most passive thing you do is going to be more effective than the thing that, that, you know, there's an actual threat? And maybe the only reason you can say that is because the U.S. has no credibility whatsoever. And therefore, they're afraid of being shamed. And that's stronger than our threats. Look, uh, look, you raise a good point. You, re- you're, you really do. Uh, and, and I think your, your description you know, of, of, of the various spectrum uh, of, of deterrence uh, is, is, is appropriate. But the problem, I think, is, is that people are looking for ways to accomplish deterrence on the cheap. Uh, people are looking for ways to avoid spending money to modernize nuclear forces. Uh, they're looking for a way, for some other way to dissuade or deter, to deter adversaries from, from doing things we don't want them to do that are less costly than, actual in, than actually investing in the necessary forces and capabilities and modernization programs that are, that are needed for deterrence to operate effectively and credibly, as you know. And I think that's actually, that's actually the problem. The, you know, it's, it's just, in my view, it's dangerous to look to try to deter on the cheap. Uh, I, I understand the desire on the part of some to find some alternative to nuclear deterrence. I don't think what's been proposed, that's been referred to as deterrence by detection or deterrence by disclosure, is the way to do it. I don't think it's generally successful. Don't get me wrong. That's not to say that letting an opponent know that we know sort of what they're up to will have no effect on their own calculus. But but to believe that that is sufficient for deterrence to work has been proven wrong. Uh, it was it was proven wrong in Ukraine because you have a Russia led by Vladimir Putin who basically it, you know it, is in a sense hell bent on bringing Ukraine under Moscow's political control, basically eliminating its independence and national sovereignty. An opponent that is that committed to that kind of a goal, in my view, is unlikely to be deterred from taking the actions that we've seen Russia take in Ukraine, simply because we we say, we know you're massing troops, we know you're planning to, to invade, or, or, or or those 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 kinds of yeah the, uh, those those kinds of uh, uh, of things are are essentially ineffective in stopping a determined aggressor from committing aggression. That's the problem. It's not deterrence if it doesn't work. It, it, you know, and and this the notion of deterrence by detection or deterrence by disclosure does not have a very strong record of success behind it. In fact, I would argue the opposite. And therefore, it's not an inexpensive or cheap substitute or solution 
to the problem of stopping an aggressor from committing aggression. Yeah, I mean, uh, I guess you, you brought up a couple of points and you said, you know, people want to do deterrence on the cheap. And I guess part of my puzzlement in this argument that we can't afford deterrence, and I've, I've mentioned this before, is, you know, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services that runs Medicare and Medicaid estimates that they lose $70 billion a year in those two programs to waste, fraud, and abuse. Now, nobody I ever mentioned that to has ever heard that because it's not a big deal. We accept $70 billion a year in waste, fraud, and abuse in those programs because people say, well, you know, we want the program, so we'll accept the loss. But yet for a country that seemingly can't afford to spend $50 billion a year on nuclear modernization and operations, then I wonder, well, how can you afford to have $70 billion in waste, fraud, and abuse? And so to me, this really, the argument that there's a cost issue with it, it's just a stupid argument. It's a way to cover over an ideological argument. And that ideological argument is one that you and Keith Payne and others and I have written about, that this is fundamentally a, an ideological conflict between realist and idealist. And the idealists say, you know, we'll make the world what we want it to be, and human nature isn't fixed. Whereas, like myself, I say, hey, listen, the problem is human nature to begin with. And because human nature is fundamentally wicked and evil, you're never going to be able to make the world the way you want it. So therefore, you're going to have to prepare defenses against adversaries. And then then the second part is, are our, you know, granted academics tend not to be particularly gifted at understanding criminals and bad guys and dictators because they get to live in an ivory tower. And so when... You know, you have a tendency from the Obama administration, the Biden administration, they they the first thing they do is they look to Boston and say, how many Boston Brahmins can we get into the administration? Because somehow working at Harvard or MIT makes you understand Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping better than I'm not sure. And so therefore they seem to, you know, to mirror image these adversaries and think that if we do the right thing, they'll do the right thing. And I'm, I, it's just puzzling to me. I'm, yeah. I'm curious, am I seeing this right? No, you, you, I, I think you are. And, you, and, you, and you've raised a number of really good points here. Uh, you know, and, and, and just let me mention them briefly. For example, this issue of cost. Cost is always raised by opponents of nuclear modernization who argue that it's too expensive uh, it's just too costly to modernize the nuclear arsenal, and, and we really don't need to do that. Uh, you know, uh, as well as many of your listeners, I'm sure, know that the costs of, of nuclear modernization are, are a small, very small fraction of the overall defense budget. Very, very small fraction. Uh, at the height of the modernization program, you're looking at no more than, than maybe 6 to, six to 7%. Uh, of, the, of the defense budget. We spend a lot on defense, of course, but most of that is not for nuclear weapons or the nuclear modernization program. But, but, but for some reason, opponents of nuclear modernization always raise the cost banner uh, 
as an argument against proceeding with those programs. What they, what they generally don't tell you is that the cost of conventional forces is a lot greater. And, you know, nuclear deterrence uh, is a relatively inexpensive way of preventing war, preventing conflict. If, if deterrence fails, the costs of rebuilding society will be would be orders of magnitude greater than the amount, uh, the, the relatively small percentage that we spend on on nuclear weapons uh, and, and nuclear programs. That's important, I think. The, the, the other thing I think is important to recognize when it comes to deterrence it, is that it is not possible to know what is in the mind of every opponent out there. In other words, it's not possible to, you know, for us to know exactly what's in the mind of Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping. Uh, you know, only they know what they happen to be thinking at any particular point in time. Deterrence deals with what the opponent believes, not with what we believe they should believe, uh, or not, not, not even what we think is sufficient for deterrence. For deterrence to work, an opponent needs to be convinced that they should not take an action because the risks are greater, the risks to them are greater than the benefits that would accrue to them in taking the action. So those who say we can afford deterrence on the cheap or we can afford to spend less on nuclear weapons or we can afford to reduce our nuclear stockpile more and, and still be safe and secure and ensure that deterrence works frankly in 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 my view don't know what they're talking about because they can't see into the minds of various opponents out there you know, you know we can think logically and we can as you say mirror image and we can suggest that well we wouldn't do something therefore they won't do it because they're rational actors. They, you know, they think like us. But the world, unfortunately, doesn't work that way. Leaders uh, of uh, aggressive countries, leaders of opponents that seek to displace the United States as a preeminent dominant power in the world today have different goals. They have different objectives. Uh, they, they come at these issues from different historical perspectives different cultural views, all of those factor into their decision-making process. Our job here is to try to shape their decision-making process as best we can by presenting them with a realistic, credible threat to them if they take an action we don't want them to take. That's how, de that's how deterrence works. Uh, and, you know, uh, you know, I would align myself with what you said. I, I sort of consider myself to be a realist rather than an idealist in the sense that international politics and international relations, you know, is, is made up of all kinds of actors with different goals and motivations. And unless we understand the motivations of others, it's really hard to know what it's going to take to prevent them from taking actions we don't want them to take. But yeah, that's, that's the nature of the deterrence business. That time in the show where we have to take a quick break. We're talking to Dave Trachtenberg, and we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Amla Deterrence Center. 
whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. And we're back and we're talking to Dave Trachtenberg. So I have a question for you. So you were the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Policy. So you've sort of had this experience. And I've wondered, I've had a few friends that, acquaintances that have gone into the administration and had never worked in government, never been in the military, you know, never done those things. They had sort of been, you know, uh, part of the Beltway their adult life. And I've wondered, I, you know, I've sort of poked a couple times just to see, has reality reshaped your view? And, and I wonder from your perspective, for those that have not sort of had that experience, you know, military careers, you know, uh, being part of the IC, those kinds of things, and they go into government for the first time, and then sort of they now are, are cleared personnel and get to see all all the stuff. Does it change the way they think? Because, you know, I, I had a, I had Ash Carter come uh, to whenever I was the SANS director out in New Mexico, and he met with myself and my group of guys and gals. And Ash was as strong on nuclear modernization as anybody. And, and he had started out as an anti-nuke guy. But, you know, I didn't ask him, but my thought was just probably that exposure over time sort of, you know, it, it reality changed him. And I'm wondering, do you think when these guys come out of the Biden administration that they're going to go back to their sort of arms control organizations and be like, hey, guys, you know, we need to rethink this a little bit. Or do you think, you know, ideology is ideology? Look, it's an interesting it's an interesting question. Uh, Ash, you're absolutely right. Uh, I think about Ash Carter's views. And of course, it was Ash Carter who said the choice is not between modernizing our nuclear deterrent or not. The choice is, is between modernizing our nuclear deterrent or not having one. We run the risk of losing it. And, and in, you know, according to Ash Carter, at the time he made that statement, he said, look, the world is, you know, is basically not a benign place and we can't afford not to have an effective, credible nuclear deterrent. He made that comment, I think it was back in 2016, okay? Now, the world has changed since 2016, and arguably, uh, I would argue, it's become a more volatile, more, even more dangerous place with the kinds of nuclear threats that have been made uh, by uh, Putin, other Russians, uh, even, even by uh, uh, China, uh, it's a, it, it, we, we live in a dangerous, at a, in a dangerous time. Uh, and, and so, you know, if we want to stay in the nuclear business, uh, we need, we need to do what's necessary in, in order to make sure that the deterrent forces we have are effective and reliable and, and credible. So I, yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, right about Ash Carter. The other thing I would say, Adam, is that Every administration, you can look at the nuclear policies of every administration, and while there are differences around specific programs, for example, the Biden administration is opposed to the sea-launched nuclear cruise missile, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the program that we in the Trump administration supported and proposed going, going forward with. 
uh, many in the Democratic Congress support that program uh, as well. So you can find differences in terms of specific programs. But if you it, but if you look at the trend lines from administration to administration, Republican, Democratic, it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter. You find that many of the fundamental nuclear policies have remained consistent. Okay, in other words, despite repeated calls over the years to eliminate the triad, or maybe to move to a dyad to get rid of ICBMs uh, or, or 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 bombers, every administration has decided that tri keeping the triad and maintaining it makes sense. We we will keep. It. You know, administrations have disagreed on the numbers of systems for each leg of the triad, but the triad itself that has remained that has remained consistent uh, among administrations. Every administration has agreed that our extended deterrent, the so-called nuclear umbrella, is important. Every administration has has agreed on certain fundamental principles of U.S. nuclear policy. So. In a sense, maybe you're right. Uh, maybe those that get into government that that previously lacked government experience, maybe they do have the opportunity to be exposed to different information uh, that that perhaps change changes their worldview a little bit. Uh, and you know, I think it's it's it is important to recognize that the United States has relied literally for, for decades and decades on its nuclear deterrent. NATO has relied on the United States' nuclear deterrent. Uh, the United States extends its nuclear umbrella of protection to over 30 countries uh, uh, now. And, you know, those countries, I believe, recognize the importance of nuclear weapons it doesn't matter whether we like nuclear weapons or don't like them. The point is that nuclear deterrence is important, and arguably, nuclear weapons have helped kept the have helped keep the peace for well over half a century now. Uh, and the notion that we can afford to either do away with or substantially reduce our nuclear arsenal, our nuclear deterrent, and still be safe and secure here at home, I think is a somewhat of a dangerous concept, uh, in, certainly in light of today's international environment. Yeah, I agree with you. So it's that time in the show where I bring out Bob. I'm going to rub my magic lamp. Bob the genie pops out, and Bob grants all guests three wishes. But they got to be related to what we've been talking about. So you get your three. You can't wish for money or fame or, you know, a supermodel, anything like that. It's got to be strictly related to what we're talking about. So wish number one, what is it? Wish number one is that there, that there is an emerging bipartisan consensus uh, in the administration and on Capitol Hill to fully fund a robust nuclear modernization program. Uh, and it may be that we even need to do more than the current nuclear modernization program, which, as you will, you will recall, was basically proposed back in the Obama administration when the international environment was more benign than it seems to be today. So, so my, my, my first wish would be to, you know, to develop some kind of bipartisan support 
for an effective, credible nuclear modernization program that may even exceed the parameters of the current program of record. That, 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 that would be my wish number one. Okay, number two. My wish number two uh, would, would be some kind of an agreement among all parties to go beyond this Cold War notion that says that says mutual vulnerability equates to strategic stability. In, in other words, this Cold War thinking that as long as we are vulnerable to an attack from major powers like Russia and China, then that's stabilizing. And anything we do to defend our homeland against missile threats from major powers or great power competitors, whatever you want to call them, nuclear peer competitors, uh, uh, that that is destabilizing or provocative, I think is a dangerous policy to follow. And to date, the United States has basically taken rudimentary steps to defend its territory from the so-called rogue states like North Korea. But we have made a conscious decision not to defend our homeland from the arsenals of Russia or China under this Cold War notion of stability that says, oh, that would be destabilizing. That would be provocative. We don't want to do that. I think it's time to rethink that. My second wish would be that uh, that, that a consensus emerges, uh, that it's, it's time to rethink our national vulnerability to great power nuclear threats. Okay, and uh, your final wish. That's a good question. You know, uh, <laughs> my, I guess my final wish would be, I, you know, I, I wish that we could return to a situation where these issues that we've been talking about can be discussed and debated civilly uh, um, among all parties in, in a way that that is logical and rational and does not lead to, to, to basically to, to the kind of polarized political positions that, that seem to be taken by people on, on, on all sides of, the, uh, uh, of this issue. I would like to get back to a point where we can actually have a reasonable, rational discussion on what is to be done and why uh, without engaging in the kinds of polemics that seem to be more and more uh, evident uh, in debates on serious issues like the kind that we're discussing here. I guess that would be my third wish. Yeah, those are three good wishes. I think Bob's willing to grant those. I'll, I'll make sure he does it. Any uh, final thoughts for the listeners? Any, you know, if you have to, you know, give that one or two points that you'd want listeners to walk away with and remember. Look, I, uh, I, first of all, I reiterate, I, you know, I appreciate the opportunity to share some, share some thoughts with you as, as always, you know, you know, I, I, you know, I find these uh, discussions intellectually stimulating. I hope uh, listeners do, uh, do as well. So I, th- I thank you for that. Uh, I do think it's important uh, to know that n- now that nuclear weapons issues seem to be, seem to have moved back from the back burner back to the front burner again, in terms of people's attention. I, I do think it's important. So the important takeaways are that nuclear deterrence is critically important. We shouldn't skimp or look to try to achieve deterrence on the cheap. There are things that we need to do in light of what 
opponents and adversaries are doing and have been doing over the past several decades that we have not kept pace with. Uh, and I think I think it's important for people to sort of understand that you know, freedom isn't free. Uh, and in order to preserve our freedom, we need to do what it takes. I'm, I'm a firm believer in Reagan's mantra of peace through strength. Uh, and, uh, you know, much, much as I wish the world were different, uh, we live, we live in the world we live in, uh, and therefore it's important in my view that we pay serious attention to the state of our overall deterrent capability, uh, especially our nuclear deterrent capability and ways, better ways that we can defend our homeland against potential aggression in the future. Yeah, I agree. Dave Trachtenberg, thanks for coming on NucleCast. Thank you. I appreciate it. And thanks to you, the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode. Well, as always, it's great to talk to Dave Trachtenberg. He's a, a super nice guy. I don't know if you may or may not know him, but one of the most nice gentlemen you'd ever meet. And he's a good, solid thinker. And, you know, he's got a, a wealth of experience over the decades. And it was interesting just to talk about uh, this, you know, sort of this approach by, you know, it was a deterrence by detection. And, you know, if you read the article he wrote, so you got to go to NIP's website and then go to the information series and then you'll find it. But he quotes General Berger, David Berger, the Marine Corps Commandant, who sort of proposed and said, you know, deterrence by threat isn't working. So therefore, you know, we're going to do this deterrence by detection. And I'll be honest with you, that's a head scratcher for me, uh, that we think that we're going to expose people's potential bad actions and think they'll be deterred when threats don't work. So it was good to talk to Dave about that. Uh, hopefully you found that interesting as well. This has been a production of the ANWA Deterrence Center, a 501c3 that seeks to educate key decision makers, stakeholders, and the public to ensure a broader understanding of the nation's strategic nuclear deterrent. Our executive producer is Kimberly Charrington, and this episode has been engineered and mixed by David Crumpall. Help us grow our followers by sharing it and follow the show on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at NuclearCast.